Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Could you tell me what, what happened today? Yes, I was sitting on the back of my truck and my son was uh, riding a scooter in the street and it was approximately a quarter to five and the black Prius drove up into the driveway of, of the house across the street and uh, there were five adults and a baby and they walked up to the door and waited for a while and there was no answer at the door. Uh, one of the gentlemen was walking around the side, I guess, to see if they were in the backyard. And about the same time, the front door opened. Um, I don't know if they opened the door or tried it or, or how the, I'll just all, all of a sudden know that they went in through the front door. And about less than 60 seconds later, they came out re uh, screaming, call the police, call the police. He's dead. The incompetence and the apathy of lead detective Sean Carazal led to the conviction of an innocent woman, and it left a killer walking free. Carazal and Doucet made many promises throughout Sandy Melgar's two hours of recorded interrogation. None of these promises were followed up on. The detectives' tunnel vision and their insistence that their premature theory must be the answer to the mystery of Jim's murder left many stones unturned. The promise was made that Carazal would go scorched earth and uncover any and all evidence to figure out who killed Jim. They were going to talk to everyone Sandy and Jim knew, everyone they're related to, but they never did. Suspects were never interviewed, leads were never followed up on, and of course, you all remember this moment from Sandy's interrogation. Sandra, part of our job is what we do is we gather witness statements, okay? We also search for video cameras, okay? And a couple of neighbors had video cameras and wanted to get your house pretty well, okay? Your front door was locked, your back door was locked. Nobody came in through the garage, Okay. The goal here was to convince Sandy that there was video evidence proving that no one came or left from the house on the night Jim was killed. Days later, Detective Doucet actually recovered the video footage from the Melgar's neighbors. And according to the police reports, they were of no use. The voice you heard in the intro of today's episode was Melanie Esmond's. She lived across the street from Jim and Sandy, and it was her video surveillance footage that Carazal was using to pressure Sandy into a confession. Mrs. Esmond has remained quiet throughout this season of Truth and Justice. Until last week, 
when she wrote in to our tip line. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lead Detective Sean Corozal was very interested in the video surveillance footage from the Esmonds' house. Their home was located directly across the street from the Melgars, and they had a camera mounted on their garage that seemed to point right at the crime scene. Harris County Sheriff's Office personnel arrived at the Melgars' home on the 23rd of December, just before 5 p.m. Corozal took the reins as lead investigator, and he assigned James Doucet to go speak with the Esmonds. His report notes the following at 6.30 p.m. Doucet advised the neighbor who lived across the street from the scene had a video camera attached to his residence. Doucet advised the video camera only covered the driveway, and he requested HCO Video Laboratory Deputy S. Williams to recover the video footage. This is one lead that Corozal did, at least it appears so, follow up on. Months later, James Doucet wrote the following in his report. I recovered the hard drive from the residence located across the street from the crime scene location. The homeowner, Melanie Esmond, stated persons from Sandra Melgar's attorney's office arrived at her home and asked her if the camera recorded Sandra Melgar's garage door, and she stated no. The camera at this home pointed down on the driveway. Investigative note. During the interview, I asked Sandra Melgar a question in reference to the neighbor home video pointing at her home. The security camera recorded the upper part of the driveway closest to the home. I submitted the hard drives to Deputy Scott Williams. At this point, both Sandy's attorneys and the sheriff's office personnel is well aware of the existence of the surveillance footage. Noteworthy in this document is the fact that the report states that Mrs. Esmond stated the camera didn't record the Melgar's garage door and that the camera is pointed down at the driveway. And both of those statements are true. But then at the end of the supplement, Doucet writes, quote, The security camera recorded the upper part of the driveway closest to the home. End quote. It doesn't say that Mrs. Esman told him that, and Doucet didn't actually see the footage as far as I'm aware. In October of 2015, about a year and a half after Sandy's indictment, the footage was turned over to the DA's office. This is from Carousel Supplement number 53. Friday, October 2nd, 2015, 10 a.m. On the listed date and time, I delivered a CD copy of the surveillance video of the residents across the street from the Melgar's home to Harris County District Attorney's Office investigator M. Antonello. Not long after the DA's office received the video, it was turned over to Sandy's defense and discovery. At this point, everyone is preparing for trial and the surveillance footage seems to be moot. It's documented in the police reports that not only does it not show Jim and Sandy's house, but it only covered, quote, the upper part of the driveway of the Esmonds property. Essentially, the DA's office turned a video over to the defense, along with a report that says it's useless and shows nothing. The video itself is a little grainy, and it's recorded with a slow frame rate. 
meaning it's, it's a, a bit, bit choppy. choppy. A video is essentially a series of still photos displayed in quick succession, like a flipbook. High-quality videos are typically recorded at a rate of 30, 60, or 120 frames, or still photos, per second. The effect is a smooth image moving on the screen. This particular video was recorded at a much slower rate than that. The result is when a fast-moving image comes into view, it sort of jumps across the screen. The other shortcoming of the surveillance footage is that it was sent to the defense as an executable file. You might remember me mentioning this months ago when I received the video files that they wouldn't open. They were not sent in a standard .mov or .mp4 format. Last week, Liz Rose figured out the problem. I was trying to open the video on a Mac. .exe files are Windows-based programs. The videos weren't in a standard format because they weren't videos at all. The files contained a video playback program that contained the videos. Now, I know this is all very boring, but essentially what I'm saying is that in order for Sandy's attorneys to view the videos, they had to use the integrated program. And it's clunky, small, and has a lot of limitations. Prior to trial, the video was reviewed by the defense counsel and the police lab. Presumably, someone from the DA's office would have watched it as well, although we have no documentation indicating one way or another that that actually happened. What we do know is that the video was not entered into evidence at trial, but it was discussed. During Sergeant Doucet's cross-examination, the video surveillance comes up a few times. Mac. Okay, so who else did you interview at the scene, Sergeant? Doucet. I believe that was it at the scene, except for a Mr. Esman, and I asked him about the video. Also from the transcript, Mac, at 6.30, certainly by 7.05, you guys are on notice that Mr. Esman has a video camera, but only captures his driveway, right? Doucet, we're aware that he has a video camera, and yes, but I wanted to confirm that. And that's why I requested video to make that location. At another place in the cross-examination, it's confirmed again that Curazal was very interested in the video at the beginning of the investigation. Mac, and again, do you recall a line of questioning that I asked you yesterday? Mr. Esman, he's the across-the-street neighbor, and he's the one that had the security camera on or above the his own garage, and that kind of pointed down to his driveway. Doucet. Yes. Mac. Right. And so you went ahead and you picked up that footage. Doucet. Actually, I spoke with him about it. Mac. Okay. Doucet. Apparently, it had not been downloaded at that time. Okay and Deputy Carazal wanted me to check on it. Mac. Okay, so was that footage at some point picked up? Doucet. From what I understand, video lab technicians went and picked it up. Then here, Mac and Doucet are discussing Sandy's interrogation. Mac. During the time that you were asking her whether or not, or you tell her that there's a video from across the street that can see her home, do you know that to be true or not? Doucet. I knew that there was a video across the street. I was not 100% certain if it showed her front door or not. Mac. All right, and did you find out whether or not it did or didn't show the front door? Doucet. Yes. Mac. And what was, what's the answer to that? Doucet. It did not. Mac goes on to ask, was there any video footage that was of any assistance to you all in the investigation of this case? Doucet. No. 
And then the entire issue of the surveillance video was put to bed by this exchange. Mac, did you later on validate that in fact the video camera perched above the Esmond's garage only captured a part of their driveway and didn't extend out any further? Do say, yes. I received copies of the video surveillance through my open records request with Harris County, as did the team over at Truth Is Justice last winter. As I've mentioned several times, I'm a Luddite when it comes to computers. I couldn't get the file to be opened, and to be honest, I wasn't overly concerned about that. After all, based on the police reports and trial testimony, and the fact that supposedly everyone on both sides had seen the videos, and no one thought they were relevant enough to enter into evidence at trial, trying to get the videos to play was pretty far down on my priority list. That is, until I opened up our tip line email address and found a message from Melanie Esman. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Melanie Esman was recently approached by a friend who told her that she had heard her police interview on our podcast. Intrigued, Melanie started listening to season six. She was prompted to write into the tip line when she heard me explaining much of what I've just recapped about the video. Namely, the fact that the police reports and trial testimony state that her surveillance camera only covered the top portion of her driveway. In her email to me, she explained that that is absolutely not true. In reality, the camera did cover a small portion of the street. Immediately, I knew that this surveillance video, which was seemingly useless up to this point, could actually be very important. Jim's murder occurred late at night. If someone drove up to the house, we should be able to see headlights or taillights unless they had been disabled by the driver. And then, that got me thinking. According to Mrs. Esman, you can see part of the street in the video. If the camera, that was continuously recording all night, another point Melanie corrected me on, it was not motion activated, but if that camera did cover some of the street, and there were no headlights or taillights pulling into the Melgar's driveway, then why didn't Colleen Barnett use the video at trial? Imagine how devastating that would have been to Sandy's case if the prosecution would have shown the jury a video that indicates no one drove up to the Melgar's house. Why didn't Barnett use it? And why did the police say that the camera only covered the upper portion of the driveway when Melanie says that you can see part of the street? 
starting to get the distinct impression that something stinks here, I tried to get the video files to open again. And at that point, I still had no success. Liz hadn't made her breakthrough about the Windows versus Mac issue yet. So then I reached out to some listeners that I know are also a part of Sam Carroll's Truth Is Justice group. He received the same set of files as me, and I was curious if he was able to get them to play. And sure enough, the screenshot of the video was posted in his Facebook page. So at that point, I knew that he had indeed been able to open the files and view the video. It could be done. So, since Sam's claim to fame is the fact that he has made the entire case file available to the public, keeping nothing hidden, reluctantly, I clicked my way over to the Truth Is Justice website. I went to the file section, and there I found literally every single file, picture, recording, and video from the state's file. Well, all except one. The surveillance video. And now, I'm really starting to think something is definitely hinky with that video. Why would only that one single file be left off of Sam's website? I knew he had opened it and viewed it because he posted a screenshot. So at that point, I have Melanie Esmond telling me that you can see part of the road in the video, which the screenshot confirmed. It's not much, but the curb and part of the road is visible in the top of the frame. And I have the police report and Doucet's trial testimony insisting that the video only shows the upper portion of the driveway and deemed useless. I have the prosecutor scratching and clawing to put together a weak case who decided not to enter the video into evidence, and the only pro-prosecution website slash podcast on the internet that claims they aren't hiding anything and has supposedly made all of the case files available to the public conveniently leaves only this video out of the reach of the public. So this is when I really began to get frustrated that my computer illiterate ass couldn't figure out how to open the files. And that's when Liz figured it out. As soon as Liz explained that I needed to open the videos on a PC, I dusted off the old Dell, and a few clicks later, there was the video. Now, full disclosure, I despise working on a Windows computer, and I was really annoyed with the software that the video was playing on. As I mentioned earlier, the video was a bit choppy and the color was bad, and there really wasn't a lot I could do with it in that interface. So I, and I'm pretty proud of this bit, figured out how to save the video from that software into an AVI formatted video, which still isn't Mac compatible, but it's close enough. I moved the AVI files onto the Mac, converted them to MP4, and Mike and I were off to the races. Magic Mouse finally in hand, I was able to blow the video up to full screen, adjust the brightness and contrast a bit, and now, with a swipe of my finger, I could scroll through the videos, speeding up and slowing down as necessary. The videos that were sent to me from the DA's office, the same videos that were sent to the defense, run from 11.35pm on the night Jim was killed through 4am the next morning. The video is broken up into one-hour chunks, each in its own file. Well, except for the first segment. The first video is only 25 minutes, from 11.35 to midnight. Which is odd, because Mrs. Esmond told me that she was working off of the time frame of 10pm to 4.30pm the next day. But when I asked her if she sent the videos beginning at 10pm, she couldn't be certain if she did or not. Nonetheless, we now have video surveillance of the street outside the Melgar's home from 11.35pm to 4am. I'll have the videos posted to our YouTube channel by this evening or first thing tomorrow morning. I'll be on a plane on my way back from CrimeCon when this episode drops. 
When you see the videos, you'll notice that there's a basketball backboard right in front of the camera. At first, I thought this would be a disruption until Liz told me to look at the pole for reflections. I did, and we get our first sign of activity at 11.55. We can see headlights reflecting off of the pole. As Mike and I continued reviewing the footage, we determined that those lights must have been from a vehicle a ways down the road. We know this because 32 minutes after midnight, we see a car actually drive past the Esmond's driveway. In that instance, you can see the lights reflecting off the basketball pole, then the truck in the driveway lights up, then the car, the street lights completely up, and you can see the headlights track past the driveway on the road. And then lastly, we continue to see the taillights reflecting off of the basketball pole on the other side as the car continues to drive down the street. There are a lot of instances of activity on this video that absolutely are up for interpretation, and I'm certainly no expert. There are, however, a few things that cannot be denied. The car driving down the street from left to right at 32 minutes after midnight is one of them. There is no other interpretation of that event. There is also no question that a car drives past the Esmond's house from the other direction, from the cul-de-sac, two minutes later. Another car drives by toward the cul-de-sac at 1.51 a.m. and another at 3.45 a.m. None of these vehicles stopped, turned in, or even slowed down at the Melgar's driveway. However, it's possible that the 1232 car and the 1234 car were the same vehicle, driving down to the cul-de-sac, turning around, and driving back out of the neighborhood. Here's the irritating part about this. Had Kurosal put any effort into reviewing this video, he could have answered some key questions. There are only 14 houses total, and that includes both sides of the road between the Melgar and Esmond houses and the end of the cul-de-sac. 14. It would have taken less than an hour for officers to speak to someone from every one of those houses and ask them if anyone from their homes drove down the street after midnight that night. And if so, at about what time? If he had done that, we could begin to piece this video together. If no one from the neighborhood drove down the street at those times, then we would know that someone was driving through the neighborhood in the window of time that Jim was killed who didn't belong there. But instead of focusing on questions like that, the door-to-door -door canvassers were far more interested in Sandy's use of a cane. No. How about Sandy? But so when you do see, when you have seen her, when I have seen her, she's been fine. But I can't, and, and she could walk fine. She at was that walking point. fine at that time. Okay. But I know that's a disease that can go either way. Either right, way right. So. But this is the first time you ever seen her in, in, in using a. It's the first time I've seen her using a cane. Okay. Let me ask you this: You were sitting in that patrol car up there when we brought her out there and photographed her, and she's on a cane. You ever see her walk with a cane before? I've never seen her on a cane before. No, I haven't. So the last time you saw her, she walked okay? Yes, she, we were, she was fine. She came to my house December... Did she walk okay? Yeah, she... I mean, that I saw her since I've known her. She's tonight, walked. Tonight, when we look, uh, took pictures of her, mm -hmm. did you see her? I saw her with a little cane. Have you ever seen her with that before? No. She's never had a cane. She's walked perfectly fine. Okay. Uh, so that's a surprise to you that to see her with that? That is a surprise, yeah. Well, she, he told me that uh, she has to use, uh, my English is... Like a cane? Yeah, well, you know, to walk. Yeah. In the written police reports, we find more of the same. Somehow, leading up to trial, everyone missed this critical piece of evidence. 
The entirety of the case against Sandy was that there could be no other explanation, and therefore, it must have been her. But what if there is another explanation? And it's staring us right in the face. There are other indications of activities around the Melgar's house in this video. Now, these examples, I'll absolutely concede, can be interpreted in many different ways. For instance, at exactly midnight, and again four minutes later, we see a small light appear, then disappear, appear again, and then disappear again, on the lower driver's side corner of the Esmond's truck. Mike and I racked our brains for hours about this light until it occurred to me that the passenger side side view mirror on the truck is pointed directly back at Jim and Sandy's garage. I think that it's possible. I won't even say plausible because, as I mentioned before, I'm very far from being a photogrammetry expert. But I think it's possible that that light that we're seeing is a reflection of lights being turned on or taillights or flashlights at the Melgar house. Fortunately, we don't have any video from the time Jim and Sandy got home, around 9.35 to 9.40, until 11.35. For all we know, the killer could already be in the house at the time this video begins. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One thing that we have to seriously consider is the possibility that Sandy could be the person responsible for some of the driving on the street. Personally, I think it's a ridiculous theory, but blood spatter expert Celestina Rossi has stated in an interview that Sandy could have taken her bloody clothes and items that she would later report as stolen away to another location in her car in the middle of the night. But in order for that to be true, we would have to see evidence in this video of someone pulling out of the Melgar's driveway after Jim was dead and then pulling back into the driveway. So the first thing we need to do is determine when is the earliest that Jim could have died and start from there. Months ago, in episode 11, I broke down some of the medical evidence to narrow down Jim's time of death window to between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. This is how I came to that conclusion in episode 11. Let's jump back to known factors first. We know that Jim and Sandy ate at Los Cucos on Saturday night. We have the Los Cucos receipt in evidence and it's available on our website. The bill was printed at 8.59 p.m. Presumably, Jim and Sandy were done eating at that point. So let's start the digestive clock at 9 p.m. In order to get a better grasp on how the digestive system factors into time of death determination, I opened up Dr. Warner Spitz's textbook, Medical Legal Investigation of Death. This text is widely revered as the Bible of forensic pathology. 
Spitz's book states, quote, Light meals are usually present in the stomach for up to one and a half to two hours, medium meals up to three to four hours, and heavy meals for four to six hours or more. In Jim's case, the size of the meal is kind of tough to figure out. According to the receipt, Jim ate a meal called El Warachi, spelled G-U-A-R-A-C-H-E. I looked it up, and it's no longer on the Los Cucos menu. But according to Wikipedia, Warachi is a popular Mexican dish consisting of masa dough and smashed pinto beans placed in the center before it's given an oblong shape. It's a fried masa base, and is usually topped with salsa, onions, potatoes, cilantro, and some kind of protein. In Jim's case, according to Sandy, he had beef on his. His meal was only $11.99 as opposed to Sandy's $14.99 fish Cancun. So I'm inclined to assume that it wasn't a huge meal. But then we have to consider the free chips and salsa, as well as the fact that they took some leftovers home. For the purposes of time of death, I'm going to shoot down the middle and call Jim's dinner a medium-sized meal. Which, according to Spitz, would be completely gone from the stomach after a maximum of four hours, give or take since the autopsy states that Jim still had, quote, partially digested food particles, end quote, we can estimate that he died within four hours of 9 p.m. Again, give or take, depending on the size of the meal and some other factors. Using four hours as the maximum, since there was still some partially digested food in his stomach, we can now narrow our window for time of death down to between 10 p.m., when he got home from CVS, and 1 a.m., when the food likely would have been evacuated from his stomach. And now we're getting somewhere. The next page of the text helps us to narrow down the time of death even further. From the text, quote, It has been found that under normal circumstances, stomach contents, which are readily identifiable by naked eye inspection, were usually ingested within a two-hour period. End quote. According to the autopsy, the food in Jim's stomach was not, quote, readily identifiable by naked eye inspection. Rather, notes in the report refer to the food as, quote, partially digested food particles. End quote. The food had broken down to a point that the ME couldn't identify what type of food it was. Therefore, we can move the front end of the time of death window back from 10 p.m., based on their arrival back at home, to 11 p.m., two hours after receiving their bill at Los Cucos, leaving us with an estimated time of death window of between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Since then, I've studied some more and consulted with some qualified medical examiners, and I think that we can narrow that window down even further because of Jim's blood alcohol level. All available evidence indicates that Jim did not drink any alcohol on the night that he was killed until after he got home. The receipt from Los Cucos shows that there was only one drink purchase, Sandy's Pina Colada. The couple stopped off at CVS for drink mixers on the way back to the house, and that receipt shows that Jim paid for the Coke and Sprite at 9.33 p.m. He then walks back out to the car and then makes the three or so minute drive home. Conservatively, I'd say that Jim and Sandy pulled into their garage around 9.40 p.m. From there, they go inside, put away their leftovers, gather up the materials to make their drinks, cut the lemons, fill the glasses with ice, fill the tub, disrobe, make the drinks, and then finally take their first sips. I'd say that we can probably assume that Jim began drinking at around 10 p.m. At this point, his blood alcohol level was zero. When he died, his blood alcohol level was 0.06. So how long did it take to get there? The process of alcohol becoming present in your bloodstream is an arc. 
Once you take a drink, your body begins to process, digest, and break down the alcohol. As this is happening, your blood alcohol level is slowly rising. You don't just take a shot and then immediately have a blood alcohol level of 0.05 or 0.06. It takes time. But as the alcohol is entering your bloodstream, your liver immediately begins metabolizing it back out of your blood. This is why you can find a happy medium where you're drinking at a slow enough pace that you can never really get drunk. In the fire service, we refer to a process like this as a critical application rate. A fire outputs heat at a certain rate, and water absorbs heat at a certain rate. When those rates match up, the fire doesn't go out, but it doesn't grow either. Add just a little more water, and the fire goes out. Gate back the water, and the fire wins. The process of metabolizing alcohol in your bloodstream works much the same way. Alcohol absorbs into your blood at a certain rate, and the liver filters it back out at a certain rate. Find the balance, and you can drink all day. Drink too slow, and you'll never get a buzz. Drink too fast, and, well, you get drunk. I told you that to tell you this. Your blood alcohol level does not spike the second the rum and coke hits your stomach. As I said, it takes time to climb. Dr. Paneri testified that Jim's toxicology screen indicates that he likely consumed two or three drinks. But he left out the time factor. Drink two or three drinks in an hour, and an hour later, your blood alcohol level wouldn't reach its peak, which for a 125-pound man would be on average about .06, until about an hour later. So if Jim had, say, three drinks, it would take two hours from the time that he started drinking, 10 p.m., until his blood alcohol level reached .06, so midnight. There's a lot of give and take and a lot of different scenarios to consider here, but based on my research and the crime scene photos, it doesn't look like Jim drank very much. And any way you shake it, he had to be alive for two hours after he started drinking. And that would narrow the window down for Jim's murder to between midnight and 1 a.m. Since there are a lot of factors to consider, let's put a margin of error of 15 minutes onto the time Jim's blood alcohol level reached 0.06. That would push the earliest time that we know Jim was alive up to 11.45 p.m. And if you really think my research is flawed, I'll even give you a 30-minute margin of error. So if Jim had two or three rum and cokes, which is supported by Sandy's recollection of the night and the crime scene evidence, and we're using an extremely wide margin of error, the gym was still alive at 11.30 p.m. So in order for us to determine if any of the activity caught on the Esmond surveillance camera could have been Sandy driving by, we would have to see her leaving the house after Jim was dead. So let's use the earliest possible time of death, the time we arrived at using the 30-minute margin of error, 11.30 p.m. At 11.30, Jim is alive, and then the attack begins. Once Jim is killed, and we're working on the hypothesis that Sandy killed Jim in this scenario, Sandy would have had to recover from the brutal fight, then clean herself up, all the experts agree that the killer would have been covered in blood, change her clothes, then gather up some items to report stolen, load them into her car, and then drive them somewhere. Let's say that process took 20 minutes, which, let's face it, is pushing it. That's moving really, really quickly and efficiently for one person without any help. Given this highly unlikely scenario, in order to believe this is what happened, you would have to believe that Sandy left the murder weapon and clothing in the bathtub, but took a few unverifiable items away from the crime scene, 
And let's not forget the state says that nothing was missing from the crime scene. But if that happened, we would have to see evidence of Sandy's car pulling out of the Melgar driveway no earlier than 11.50 p.m. And that's with the widest margin of error possible. In reality, all evidence indicates that Jim Melgar was killed between midnight and 1 a.m. So, why does this matter? It matters because there is something on the Esmond surveillance video that everyone missed. The video begins at 11.35 p.m., when Jim was still alive. No vehicles leave the Melgar's home after that. So Sandy is still inside the house with Jim at five minutes after midnight, when a vehicle approaches the house from the west and pulls into Jim and Sandy's driveway. On the surveillance video at 12.05 a.m., clear as day, headlights travel down Kelsey Meadows Court from the west, slow down as they approach the Esmond's house, and then turn into the Melgar's driveway. We have video surveillance footage of Jim Melgar's killer pulling into his driveway, and it's been there the whole time, and no one caught it. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.